rest of us, we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We've been looking at great expectations and unmet expectations. As the nation Israel placed all their hopes and dreams on Jesus' shoulders, yet were not careful to listen to him as to what his mission and purpose was. And Nathan masterfully took us through the Old Testament last week. thought he did an amazing job of, amen, of taking us through the Old Testament, showing us this has always been Israel's problem and, by extension, our problem, that the heart needs to be cleaned first before the kingdom can come. Otherwise, what's the point in having... Uh, the kingdom set up the way you like it if you're not ready to worship the king. And so the crowd crowned Jesus king. We call it the triumphal entry. They laid palm branches and jackets, coats, symbolizing we're at your service. You can walk over our bodies to set up your kingdom. Yet in just a week, they would shout, crucify him, crucify him. Today we're going to see that Jesus rebukes Israel. And we're going to look at how Israel responds to that rebuke. We'll look at Mark eleven twelve to 31. And the title of the sermon is Four Ways to Harden the Heart. Just to be careful that nobody thinks this is a sermon about how you're supposed to harden your heart. Hardening the heart is a bad thing in the Bible. Right? Being stubborn is not a good thing, according to Jesus. Being stubborn about biblical convictions, that's okay. But being stubborn about your personal agenda, not okay. And so they had taught me in seminary that occasionally preach a sermon from the back door. Tell people what not to do. And then at the end, by application, say, well, then what shall we do? And sometimes it's easier for us to accept a rebuke when we see somebody else being rebuked. Right? And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things, these Old Testament stories are given to you for your example. Here's Israel complaining and grumbling in the wilderness. That's us. Here's Israel hardening its heart against God's will and plan and purpose. Here's us. We can see it easily in the Pharisees. It's harder to see in us. And so may God soften our hearts today and give us eyes to see and ears to hear that it would hit home where it needs to hit home. Amen? Amen. A sermon preached to my own heart, but preaches to yours. So first, let's look at the rebuke. Verses 12 to 14. Mark 11, 12 and 14. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, 
May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. That's a symbolic rebuke. He's rebuking a tree. Much in the same way we're watching Jesus rebuke others so that we will be more teachable, Jesus first symbolically rebukes a tree to prepare their hearts for the greater lesson. And so as we continue reading, we see the literal rebuke. Then they came to Jerusalem, the, the heart of Israel. Jerusalem at the Passover, the heart of Israel. And he entered the temple, the heart of hearts. The heart of hearts of Israel, the temple. And began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. Now, that's a rebuke to tell to the religious leaders. Tantamount to someone barging into the church on Easter Sunday and rebuking the elder board and the pastor. And yet Jesus had warrant for this. What was the, the rebuke? As Nathan was teaching us, Israel was supposed to be this example to the nations that many would come to place their faith in the living God. They were supposed to live a life that would adorn the gospel like we are supposed to. And at the height of Israel's reign under Solomon when all of Israel's enemies were beneath their feet and Solomon built this glorious temple and nations came from all around and paid tribute both with their lips and with their money to finance the temple. They came to hear Solomon's wisdom that God had given to him. At the peak of Israel's glory, Solomon squanders the blessing. And he begins to act as other kings act and make pacts with kings and marry their daughters to keep the peace. I mean, after all, they wouldn't attack Israel if their daughter was married to Solomon. And to appease all of these queens, he would build pagan temples so they can worship in the way they worshiped in their homeland. But when the temple was built and before Israel squandered this blessing, we read that when they inaugurated the temple, God's glory came and rested inside the temple. The word is Shekinah in the Hebrew. His Shekinah glory. God's glory filled the temple. Now God himself can't be contained by Buildings built by human hands. We read that in the Bible. But His glory in some way filled the temple. Just as His glory 
when Israel wandered through the wilderness, led them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And yet, when Israel began to sink into apostasy, we read in Ezekiel, God's glory exiting the temple and had not returned since and were some 400 plus years later and God's glory was not present in this temple we read about. In fact, Solomon's temple was dismantled, burned and dismantled. The northern kingdom was defeated, eventually the southern kingdom by Babylon, the, the the temple dismantled, and later they would get to return the remnant and start to rebuild the temple. But when they rebuilt it, there were still some who remembered how glorious Solomon's temple was, and they wept because this, this temple was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. But in the time of Herod the Great, Herod was a great manager of people, an architect, and he started a building program. As king of the Jews, as appointed by Caesar, they spent, I believe, some 47 years building Herod's temple. This was a magnificent building. Just amazing. And yet God's glory did not dwell in Herod's temple until the day God himself showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And the rebuke was to drive out everything unholy, everything profane. And for almost a week, God's glory reigned in Herod's temple. It became God's temple. And the people allowed him to do this because they thought he was going to assemble his army there and then attack Rome. But the strange thing was he comes and is inaugurated king and the first people he rebukes are his own people and not Rome. In fact, not just any people, but the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests who ran the temple, the elders who made decisions and judged over the people. Remember when Moses appointed elders to judge over the people? The Pharisees who were... um, The synagogue leaders, they were the most popular type or denomination of Judaism at the time. And then the Sadducees were the religious leaders of a less popular uh, denomination. They didn't believe in a physical resurrection, but they had their followers. But the point being that anybody who was a religious leader of Israel at this time rejected God in human flesh. How ironic, the people who taught the people and were supposed to point the people to God, God showed up and they pointed the people away from Him. And so Jesus rebukes this tree because it didn't bear fruit and rebukes Israel because it's not bearing fruit. Remember when God made His covenant with Abraham? Father Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations and I will bless the nations through you. Israel was supposed to bless the world through the true heart worship of the one and only living true God. And yet again and again they fell into pagan idolatry. 
not bearing the kind of fruit that God expected them to bear. And so, God pronounced judgment over Israel. In seminary, we had to, to learn all the, you know, the books of the Bible, obviously, but know them backwards and forwards and what each one's theme. And when you get to the prophets and all those minor prophets, you just had to remember the theme was judgment, restoration. Judgment, restoration. Because God has made a promise with Israel, right? And He's not going to break His promise. He has a covenant with Israel. But a covenant does not mean that He doesn't discipline the ones He loves. And so Israel, even today, is under the disciplining hand of the Lord, and yet there's a great future for Israel. God has not forgotten His promises. So here's God's glory returning to the temple in the person of Jesus Christ. I can only imagine what He was teaching that week. must have been awesome. You know, you get good preaching here, but nothing like what they were getting. Straight from God's lips with no Pharisees or Sadducees to interrupt, it says they would not let them in. And what was the problem with these money changers and those selling doves? Every year the Jews had to come for the Passover to the temple and pay a temple tax. The temple tax had to be paid in a specific denomination. And people were coming from all over, including other nations, carrying money of other denominations and they needed to exchange the money for the proper denomination and what a great situation for those who want to make a buck. Historical records show us that at this time the exchange rate was as high as 10 to 12% interest to convert your money to proper temple money. And it's amazing it was that low. So, but if you are poor and didn't have much, a 10 to 12% markup, that's terrible. And what about the doves? You were supposed to bring an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice, and the chief priests, they had their whole priestly entourage, and they would examine your lamb and make sure it was fit for sacrifice, and most of them weren't. But that's okay because we have our own lambs here at the temple for a small fee. For a small fee. Uh, No, you cannot pay in your denomination. You'll need to change your money for that too. God has a heart for the poor and he he said in his word that the poor could buy doves and sacrifice two doves. And so there were those selling doves and you can imagine the markup on doves was exorbitant. This is offensive, profane to the heart of God. It's offensive and profane to you and I, and we're human. But to a holy and righteous God in His own temple, you rarely see Jesus' anger unleashed in the pages of Scripture. But here we see the wrath of God. The just, righteous wrath of God cleansing his temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It's quoting Isaiah. And they would know the scriptures. They had to, the chief priests and elders. They had to know the Old Testament scriptures. It was a requirement. 
So how did the Sanhedrin respond with repentance, with humility? Did they fall to their knees in tears? The obvious was finally pointed out. The emperor has no clothes, so to speak. Everyone must have known the whole system was corrupt. No, they did not. They plotted to kill him. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. They were more afraid of losing their power than listening to Jesus. They must have known in their heart of hearts that what he was saying was true. If it wasn't true, then the people would have had an uprising right then. You know, if if this man comes in and kicks out all your religious leaders and starts making accusations, if they weren't true, the people would, would have had an uprising right then. People knew this was true. Sometimes when evil goes on for so long, people, even God's people, just turn a blind eye. It is what it is. It's just the system. But it shouldn't be. What about the disciples? How did they respond? How did they respond? I think at first they were pretty excited because now the temple was clear and they were in charge. They had important jobs to do. They wouldn't even let people who were selling goods move through the temple. You know, folks were like, I'm going to Israel for Passover. There's going to be lots of people there. I might as well bring some of these goods I've been building and working on and do some selling and some exchanging. And that's okay. Just not inside the temple. It's okay to conduct business amongst Christians, but I wouldn't expect in the middle of the Lord's Supper for people to be cutting private deals over in the corner. Well, I knew he was going to be here, and I was going to be here. And and so he drove even those people out. So the temple was filled only with God's teaching and the worship of God. What a glorious week that must have been. Israel hasn't seen anything like it since. In fact, in A.D. 70, the Romans will destroy the temple. And it hasn't been rebuilt since. They'll burn it, melt all the gold in it, remove the gold, and then dismantle Herod's temple brick by brick, stone by stone, that which took 47 years to build and people thought could never be destroyed. God cast his judgment on the idolatrous hearts of his chosen people. And what better example, what better place to exact that judgment but the temple itself. So they're leaving the temple one night, and it says uh, whenever evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered. He's excited, amazed. Amazed. 
Why is he amazed, beloved? For the first... I mean, they've seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. He's raised the dead. He's walked on water. Why is Peter so amazed at this? At least for the first time, Jesus has used his power to destroy, to judge. They've never seen him do that. They've asked him, can we bring down fire on Samaria? And he said, no. (laughs) No. And he curses his fig tree and withers from the roots up because, beloved, that's, that's where it happens, at the roots. Our roots are our heart. If you see bad fruit, it's because there's a bad root. The Bible, maybe the most dominant theme in the Bible is that God is after our hearts and needs to cleanse us from the inside out. That's something only God can do. So the disciples were amazed and confused. All kinds of expectations were being dashed. What's going on here? When are we going to assemble our army? What are we going to do today? More teaching. Peter wanted to fight. And if you're going to fight, you need to be more powerful than your enemy. And look at that. Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered. I want that kind of power. Jesus said we're going to be able to do the things that he does. Peter wanted that kind of power. Imagine that kind of power in Tehachapi, the land of weeds. Just curse the weeds and they withered. You'd make a fortune. Yes, you put all the weed whacker kids out of business. Sorry, Levi, wherever you are. If we could just all curse weeds or trees and make them wither. The strange thing about this tree is it wasn't, even, it wasn't supposed to be giving figs. So you have to think about that for a moment. It wasn't the season for figs. And yet the people wanted Jesus to deliver things out of season, did they not? They demanded of Jesus that we have freedom from Rome now and peace and prosperity. And he kept saying it wasn't, wasn't the time yet. wasn't the time. wasn't the time. So as part of his judgment, he rebukes this tree that's out of season. He expected of the tree to give him something that wasn't reasonable to expect yet at that time. So it's a very, very palatable, very vivid symbol of of judgment. So what will the disciples do? That's our question. Are they going to repent and listen to Jesus and renew their minds and align their expectations with his? Or will they just harden their hearts like the Sanhedrin? What will it be? Beloved, there's only two options when God rebukes us. Accept the rebuke or... Harden your heart. Some think there's a third option. I'll just think about it for a while. Circle the plane. Well, the problem with that strategy is the plane runs out of fuel eventually. God will get his answer. And if you're circling the plane, you've given your answer, which is, no, I don't want to obey. I'll just pretend it's not a problem. 
We're choosing option C, but there's only option A and B, beloved. Obey or disobey? So, we're going to look at how the Pharisees responded, and it's going to show us four ways that our heart's hardened. And if we know how the heart gets hardened, then we can take steps to soften the heart. So, Jesus answers Peter, and he says, Have faith in God. What a strange answer when Peter says, Look at the tree. He says, Have faith in God. doesn't say anything about the tree. Nothing about how he did it. He just says, have faith in God. Because the first way to harden the heart is to distrust God. Put your faith in someone else or something else. If you want to harden your heart. Put your faith in yourself. Trust yourself. Trust your plan, your agenda. Trust your own sovereignty. And then when things don't turn out the way you want them to turn out, because how could they, beloved? If you're going to set your own agenda separate from God's agenda, then don't be shocked when things don't turn out the way you planned. But set your heart on the things God sets His heart on, and there will be satisfaction and contentment. Oh, there will still be trouble, but Jesus said there will be trouble. This life has trouble. If you set your heart on, I should have health, wealth, and prosperity, and nothing should ever go wrong then you're distrusting God because He has not said that is the case. And then you harden your heart and you say, Why, God? Why? Why me? Everybody experiences trouble here on earth. If you're not, then you should be saying, Why me? Why me? How come I don't have any trouble or trials? Sometimes I do say that when things seem to be going so well and others are suffering so much, they say, God, why me? And I think his answer is just wait. <laughs> it's just a good season for you to catch your breath and strengthen you. But something's coming. So I'm not a pessimist, but I know the other shoe's going to drop. Because this, is, this life is not heaven. I'm waiting for heaven in heaven, not, not here. Plenty to enjoy here. Plenty to bless the Lord's name here. But not perfection. So if you want to harden your heart, distrust God. You know, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years now. Any question they had to ask of God, they could just ask. Wouldn't that be great? Like face to face. I mean, I know you can ask God now and get the answer through the word and prayer, but like to sit down with Jesus and ask. And soon they're going to be without him. They're going to have to have faith in God like they've never had to have before. And so he's preparing his disciples. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Does that mean you can ask for anything? And it'll happen if you just have enough faith. This is the favorite text of the word faith move, the name and claim it, the health, wealth, and prosperity. The reason you're poor and the reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. 
Recently in the news, a family was convicted of third-degree murder for not taking their child to the doctor because their pastor said that is a lack of faith. And it was a very treatable, curable disease the child had. I had read that uh, Dr. MacArthur went on CNN to um, explain this text in particular. It's not what God is saying. It's hyperbole. He doesn't actually want us to cast mountains into the sea. Could you imagine the chaos if we all had that kind of power? What kind of mountains is he talking about? The things that he asks us and commands us to do that are completely reasonable for us to do, and yet because of the hardness of our hearts, we don't want to do them. We don't want to forgive our brother. We don't want to confess our sins to one another. We don't want to choose the path of humility. We don't want to listen to a gentle rebuke. These are, these are hard. Remember when Peter asked God, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times, Lord. And the Lord said, what? Seven times 70? And what did Peter say? Oh, Lord, you'll have to increase my faith. Blame shift God. God has not given me the resources to forgive like that. Yes, he has. In Christ, he has. And then he tells a parable of a servant who goes out in the field and works all day and comes in, and he's tired and thirsty, but his master asks for a cup of water. And Jesus says to Peter, is that reasonable? Should the servant tell the master, I'm thirsty, I've been working all day, I'll get myself some water? And Peter says, no, the servant will do what the master commands. And in the Amplified Version, Jesus says, you betcha. <laughs> you got it, Peter. You can do it. It's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of the right kind of faith. Have faith in God. If God loved us so much that he would die for us, then if he tells us to do something that is uncomfortable for us, we ought to trust that that is what is best. And in case you think I'm making this up, look at the very next thing he says to the disciples. Right after saying, whatever you ask for, don't doubt, and it'll be given to you. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If the interpretation is the health, wealth, and prosperity word faith movement, then this next line has no business sticking here, it's a non sequitur, it's disconnected from Jesus' teaching. But if what he's teaching is have faith in God, and if you have faith in him, you can do the things you think are impossible, then this line makes perfect sense. Like forgiving your brother. That's got to be like people's exhibit A of things that we hate to do and think we can't. And so we harden our hearts and hold on to bitterness. We give people the silent treatment. We ascend to the throne of God and cast judgment on our enemies. But that's not what Jesus has taught us. By the way, um, verse 26, some of you have that in your New King James or your King James. Others, it's not there. And some of you, it's in brackets. All that means is that this verse is not in the better manuscripts that we have. It's not in the better manuscripts. The older manuscripts, this verse is, is not there, but we put it in. The Bible translators put it in. 
Jesus did say that verse. He did say that line. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew. Probably what happened was as a scribe was copying the New Testament, this verse triggered in his mind and he, he wrote it. That's not to say you can't trust your Bible and that there's errors in your Bible. This is not an error. We can read it in another passage. Nevertheless, that's the second way to harden your heart then is to disobey God. God, I can't forgive. God, I can't ask my wife for forgiveness. God, I can't forgive my husband. God, I can't tell mommy and daddy I was wrong. I can't forgive that brother. I can't humble myself and consider that maybe there's better ideas than my own. I can't do what Philippians 2 says, consider others more important than yourself. Yes, you can. Of course you can. It's I don't want to. And yet there's great freedom and blessing on the other side of obedience. But if you want to harden your heart, just pretend you can't do it. Well, let's call it what it is. It's disobedience, not I was unable. Remember when your kids would tell you, I can't eat your broccoli? I can't. (laughs) What do you mean you can't? I just can't. My throat closes up. Of course you can. Clean your room. I can't. Well, you messed it up okay. Just do it in reverse. I can't. Sometimes I have to help my children kind of get started until they get to a point where they can. You know what? In God's love and kindness to us, He does. He, 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 get, he walks, us, walks us down the path until we, we can say we can. But it starts with a heart that says, well, I, I want to obey God. Just, it's hard. You can say that. It's hard. But you can't say I can't to the things God says you can. The strange thing is we want to do the things that only God can do. We want to move mountains and miraculously heal and walk on water. But the things he says we should do, we can do, we say, oh, I can't do that. We'd much rather move a mountain than ask forgiveness. And so now you understand these moving mountain passages. And in other passages, he says, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the ocean, and it, it, would, it would obey you. So that can't be literal. Third way to harden your heart against God is to disregard God. So we've got distrust, disobey, disregard. Disregard. Let me give you a visual of disregarding God. I'm not listening. (laughs) Your kids ever done that? Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. You've got an airtight, logical case against them, and they know they've lost. But instead of acknowledging your wisdom, they just cross their arms and I'm not gonna not gonna agree. I'm gonna dig in my heels and be stiff necked, the Bible says. Let's look at the way the Pharisees disregard God's rebuke. And they came again to the 
to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Do you you understand the question? Who gives you the right? Where do you get off coming in here and kicking us out of here, knocking over tables? Who gave you this authority? And they really wanted him to say, I have this authority. They wanted him to equate himself with God, which would have been the right answer and the true answer, but they weren't willing to hear that answer. You know, we all have to submit to authority here on earth, and even Jesus in his humanity had to submit to authority. He submitted to his parents' authority perfectly. Imagine. And whatever other authority he had to sit under, but... In his divinity, Jesus was the only man to walk this planet who didn't have to answer to anyone. And yet we all walk around like we don't have to answer to anyone. He demonstrated humility to us, and we're the ones who need to be humble. He said, I do nothing except what the Father has commanded me to do. And so he had all the authority. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I love it. He turns it around on them, which is the way the Pharisees would teach. So he's giving them a taste of their own medicine. They'd be used to this kind of response. They're used to answering questions. They've never been stumped before. They are the teachers of Israel. They have all the answers. And so they say, okay. And he says, the baptism of John, from heaven or men? Answer me. With authority. Answer me. Answer me. Well, what's wrapped up in that question? The baptism of John wasn't just dunking people in water. It was the whole package. When Jesus said to the disciples, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? Was, was he going underwater? No, he's talking about going to the cross. So baptism is euphemistic for the whole package. John's whole package, the whole teaching. From God or from man? Because John said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, I must decrease, he must increase. John said, I'm not even fit to untie the strap of his thong, of his sandal. So that John, is that from heaven or from man? And Sadducees huddled, oh, we have a dilemma. We say it's from heaven, then we're admitting that Jesus is who he says he is. But if we say it's from man, the people love him and they're going to kill us. Well, there was a third option. They could say, it was from God and we've been wrong and please forgive us. Here's the keys to the kingdom. We bow at your feet, command us. But they didn't see that as an option. And beloved, that's where we get stuck. That's where we get stuck. We think there's option A and option B and I don't know what to do because they both have terrible consequences and yet there is a third option but we don't want to entertain that option because we're stuck. What third option? Like, I'm the problem? Yeah, I think so. Well, that can't be. (laughs) Change my mind? 
listen to somebody else? That can't be the option because my option's the right one. So why, would, why would I want to, to take bad advice? And so we think that we don't have a way out of the dilemma. And so the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they give the classic coward answer. I don't know. We don't know. They actually said, we don't know. These are the people who never say, we don't know. They always have an answer. In fact, that's their favorite role in society, is we have all the answers. That's why you're coming to me, to ask me questions. I don't go to you to ask questions. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. I have more authority than you. You're in my office. I'm not in your office. And then God shows up and says, i got a question for you. And they say, I don't know. Like your kids. Why did you? I don't know. You know why you did it. Answer me. Of course, you're not going to get an answer out of your kids if you're in their face like that. When I'm trying to woo a confession out of my children and a gentle rebuke, and I say, just... Admit you sinned. Just admit it. God will forgive you. And all that guilt. But the longer you wait, the harder it is to say the words. That's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Don't Get it done. Rip the band-aid off. But do it with a penitent heart. Don't just say, sorry, sorry. That doesn't work. And we see our kids digging our heels, but beloved, where are we digging in our heels? Where are you digging in your heels today? Where has God cornered you? You've got no way out. In His love and in His great wisdom, He's got you nailed. Relent. Repent. Trust Him. His way is best. Breaks my heart when... Folks decide to harden their hearts and dissolve a friendship, dissolve a marriage, leave a church, go be a church of one somewhere. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis in the book that Elder Borsier is teaching. And you see, looking back, how all the plans you have ever made always have shipwrecked on that fatal flaw, on your incurable jealousy or laziness or touchiness or muddle-headedness or bossiness or ill-temper or changeableness. This is the next great step in wisdom to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. And it is no good passing this over with some vague general admission, such as, well, of course, I know we all have faults. It is important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you, something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about, like what the advertisements call halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. But why, you ask, don't the others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. 
Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know about, you don't know fully. Is God speaking to you through His Word this morning, through other brothers and sisters who've come to you speaking truth and love, and you're disregarding the warning of God, the rebuke of God. The Word of God is it's God-breathed, and it's good for rebuke, correction, discipline, and teaching. Rebuke's a good thing when done in love and done by God and done by loving brothers and sisters or a loving spouse, loving parent. Of course, if you're the one going around doing all the rebuking all the time, maybe you need to listen to your brothers and sisters that your eyes are full of logs and you need to get them out before you attempt to remove anyone else's splinter. But you just need to listen. How do you know when you're hardening your heart? There becomes a mountain of evidence that stacks against you that you just can't escape anymore. That's why Jesus said on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you know, if it's just one person with an agenda, that's one thing, but when everyone's telling you and you won't listen, and that that was the Pharisees here, we don't know. Oh, they knew and everybody knew. So the fourth way our hearts get hardened is kind of the scariest way, because the first three we do to ourselves, but after a while, God will harden our hearts. I don't completely understand this principle in Scripture, but it is, it is all throughout the pages of Scripture, that at some point, God in His sovereignty, and He does this perfectly, and we can't, He decides that enough is enough. in the ultimate sense, for the unbeliever. And so if you're sitting here today and you have not yet trusted the Lord Jesus as Savior, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Stop putting it off. Get saved. Stop dancing around the cross, tiptoeing between belief and unbelief. Repent and believe in the gospel and ye shall be saved. And if you are in Christ and you're harboring a secret sin that you just won't let go of, today is the day to confess it. Let it go and receive God's cleansing. You don't have to walk around with the heavy hand of the Lord crushing down on you because He loves you and will not allow you to walk around in stubbornness and hardness of heart. In Romans 1.28, Paul says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Gave them over. Okay, you made your bed, now sleep in it. I see head nods because we've all been there. Where God in His love let us sleep in the bed we made. Because it was the only way we were going to listen. And our world came crashing down around us. Sin just won't work. Oh, there's some immediate gratification. But the long-term destruction is, is terrible. 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, when they said, we do not know, he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You don't want to play serious with me, then, as my counseling professor would say, the way of the transgressor is hard. When you get to that point in discipleship and counseling where the person is just not going to listen, and you've gone the extra mile, two, three, four extra miles, five extra miles, sometimes all you can say is, the way of the transgressor is hard. God have mercy on you. Paul says to one such as that, you send them out of the church for the destruction of the flesh with the hope that they'll be restored restored someday. And so the final, the final antidote to a hardened heart then is the gospel. The cross will soften your heart. Because of the cross, we can trust God. We can trust Him. He knows our hearts and died for us anyways. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. We can obey God. He's broken the power of sin by paying the penalty of sin. We can obey God. We don't have to say, I can't anymore. And we can regard God's word, his plans, his will, and his perspective over our own. We no longer have to say, I know better. We no longer have to say that. We no longer have to get defensive when God backs us in a corner. We can relent and say, you win, but not fine, you win. You win. Because you win, I win. Because you have victory, I have victory. Because you love, I can love. Because you forgive, I can forgive. So I don't know where you're at today, beloved, where there's a little hard spot in your heart, a little atherosclerosis. God wants to soften it. If he has to smack you around a little first, he will, out of love. How much better to just bend the knee and relent and receive his grace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us so much that you do discipline the ones that you love. That you bring the word of God to bear on our hearts. That you bring brothers and sisters in Christ around us to expose our sin. Oh, that we would listen to you and trust you, obey you, and regard your wisdom. That we would align our hearts with yours and enjoy the blessing of being your children and living in your kingdom. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.